let's turn to Jonah chapter 1. Jonah. The book of Jonah in the Old Testament. Now, in my Bible, it's on page 943, but it may not be in your Bible. So it's one of the uh, minor prophets that follows Daniel and Hosea and Joel and uh, Amos and Obadiah, which is all books that we've all just covered recently. And now Jonah had an introduction to the book of Jonah last week. So tonight we're going to start to dig a, li- dig a little bit in the first couple of verses. I'd like to read the first three verses to you of chapter 1. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now the word of the Lord came unto Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it. For their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord and went down to Joppa. And he found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare thereof and he went down into it to go with them unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Did you ever run away from home? Or did you ever want to run away from home? I'm always reminded, when I think about that, I'm always always reminded of a humorous image. It used to be like in cartoons and stuff, but uh, images of, of a child who, for whatever reason, would be upset at something mom or dad may have said or ordered them to do. And then they decided to run away from home carrying whatever meager possessions they had, or a change of clothes maybe, in this large kerchief, or you know, just kind of like a, maybe a pillowcase or something, and then they tied it to a string, and then they carried that away, you know. That was running away from home. And, uh, you know, sometimes the parents said, well, go ahead. You go ahead and run away, and uh, they'd go down about maybe a block or two, you know, they'd wave at you, and they'd do a block or two, and then they would realize it's getting dark, and they're getting hungry, so they'd go back for dinner, you know. So they never really ran away from home. So we all may want to run away from home from time to time, but it's a problem. It's a problem because truly running away from home has a lot of consequences to it. On a much more serious note, national statistics show that over a million people annually, the great majority being juveniles, attempt and are successful at running away from home. And while the outcome of these quote-unquote successful runaways is only at times encouraging, more often than not, the results are catastrophic, leaving both the runaway and those left behind devastated by whatever the outcomes may be. Some of those heart-rending problems that result from running away are broken ties with family and loved ones, sometimes drug addiction, other times poverty and hunger, destitution and homelessness. Think about the homeless problem today in, in, in the United States alone, especially in in some of the great large urban areas. And I mention that because of our 
topic and, and, and what's being taught here in, in the book of Jonah. Uh, but the destitution, the homelessness, the mental and contagious diseases, and even prostitution and slavery may even lead to things like accidental death or even murder. But this great book of Jonah opens with a prophet, a prophet of Almighty God, running away from both his home and his country, not to mention that he's running away from God himself. Now, I don't know if, you, you know, if, it's, if, if it's rung the bell in your head yet, but how do you run away from God? The fact of the matter is, every time you run away from God, you keep running into him. Because that's how big he is. And that's how awesome he is. And here's the other thing about the God that we serve. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God and Father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He loves us. The story of the prodigal son in the Gospel of Luke is just a, a small example in, the, in that story. I, I, I call it a story or an account because, you know, many call it a parable. But I, I believe it was a true account that Jesus was sharing about a father who waited for a runaway child, ran away with his inheritance. Demanded it, took it, and wasted it. It's a good picture of the fact that you can't really run away from God. Because you'll always run back into it. So no doubt Jonah gave some thought to the consequences of his actions. But, but even so, he made a terrible choice. This prophet was about to cause and endure indescribable suffering. And in what can only be described as a scene of high drama and suspense, Jonah is seen fleeing as far away as he can, seeking to break all ties with his former life. In effect, he was seeking to flee the call of God upon his life. I think there are a lot of people that still do that today. They realize that God is speaking to them or God is moving upon them or God is speaking to them in some way that is saying, this is what I'm calling you to do. And, and, it, and it wakes us up to the, to the fact that sometimes we, we start off superficially with God, you know, superficially meaning just kind of on the surface with God. God doesn't, you know, he, God doesn't care about our surface. He cares about our heart. He cares about what's deep inside of us. So when he speaks to us, he speaks to us in a way that says, I want you to trust me, and I'm calling you to do something. So it isn't so much escaping the call, or escaping the person of God, because you can't escape him. It's trying to escape the call of God. So we read in the first two verses here, now the word of the Lord. 
But remember always that the word of God is always pure. It is always true. It is always right. It is always just. It is always perfect. Read Psalm 19 tonight. Psalm 19, that's your homework. It talks about the word of the Lord. And how perfect it is. And how wonderful it is. The word of the Lord came unto Jonah the son of Amittai saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city. I mentioned last week the great city is a reference to the fact that it was a big city. We have big cities today. Mexico City, Los Angeles, London, Hong Kong, all over the world. Big, great cities. That's what Nineveh was like. And he says, go to that great city, Nineveh, and cry against it. In other words, cry out to them with a message. And he says, for their wickedness has come up before me. And although I briefly mentioned this in our, in our introduction last week, <clears throat> this book of Jonah was, was written in the third person. And though it does not explicitly name the prophet as the author, there's no reason to doubt his authorship, nor the inspiration and historical authenticity uh, and accuracy of this book. It is very possible and probable that Jonah was the one who wrote this who better to write about his own life? And yet, even Paul talks about himself in the third person in, in 2 Corinthians. When trying to describe that meeting with God, being caught up to the third heaven. It's hard to talk about yourself in the sense of saying, I went this and I went in that direction or I did this because in fact if Paul, in Paul's situation of course it would have been as if he was boasting and he didn't want to boast God gave him the opportunity to use that third person there was a person there was a man he was talking about himself so it's, it's not uh, far-fetched to think that certainly Jonah wrote this himself because he knew all the details. He knew all of the situation that he was dealing with God and God was dealing with him. But here's, here again, and this is just as a point of review, but Jonah is clearly identified as a son of Amittai, as, as was mentioned in 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25, where it also mentioned he had a hometown. His hometown was Gath Hefer, near uh, Nazareth. So it was up in the, in the Galilee region. And let's not forget to mention that Jesus himself also identified with the prophet's uh, three-day journey in the belly of, of the great fish. Jesus identified with that. Why would he identify with something that was fiction? It wasn't fiction to Jesus. And Jonah wasn't some kind of a Hollywood character. He was truly a, a prophet. And Jesus identifies with a prophet to uh, foreshadow his own death and spending three days in the heart of the earth, as it says in Matthew 12. Let me read it again to you in verse 38. It says, Then certain of the scribes and of the Pharisees answered, saying, Master, we would see a sign from thee. 
But he answered and said unto them, An evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, and there, there shall no sign be given to it but the sign of the prophet Jonas. For as Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh shall rise in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonas. And behold, a greater than Jonas is here. One thing that I didn't point out last time is that the Lord's identification with Jonah, which took place at the lowest part, or the lowest point, I should say, in the prophet's life. I mean, this was a really low point in his life. When he's running from God, when he's cast from the ship, as we'll read later on, when he's swallowed up by this whale, because that's what Jesus called it, a whale. Big fish. It spit out, actually vomited onto the shore. And certainly with all of the digestive juices of the whale looking pretty white. And scary probably and stinky too. That's a low point in his life. But Jesus identifies with Jonah here. At the lowest point in his life, and it, and it resonates with a statement in the book of Hebrews where it teaches something about Jesus. And we need to know this. In Hebrews 2, verses 14 through 18, Paul says, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same. Jesus put on flesh and blood. That through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil. And deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Now get verse 17, this is the the key verse here. Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. It behooved him to be made like unto his brethren. What, the good brethren? The righteous brethren? Not the righteous brothers, but the righteous brethren? Okay. It behooved him to be like the lowest on the earth. At the time of Jonah's life, it was the lowest point of his life. But it was his brethren. He was made like unto his brethren that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. And always remember this, without sin, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. So with this in mind, this book of Jonah stands as an important link in the cohesiveness of prophetic literature, how all prophetic literature is linked together. But this is is an important link because it gives the reader a hint, a hint, a big hint, but a hint of Jesus Christ's death and resurrection many hundreds of years before it actually took place.
And so again, as a point of review, Jonah was already serving as a prophet to the nation of Israel when this new commission came to him from the Lord. And apparently Jonah had been serving as a prophet in Israel for some time, for he had actually predicted that King Jeroboam II would regain the territory that had been lost by Israel down through the years. We read that in 2 Kings 14. We read this last week. I just want to bring it up again to remind you of this, of, of the very actions and, and uh, uh, conduct of this prophet. Because remember this, the book of Jonah is about Jonah the prophet, but not a prophecy per se. It's not written as a prophecy per se. It's written more like a biography, though I consider it to be an autobiography. Yet within it, you'll find the prophetic ties to the end times, to Christ Jesus, of course, and so to the future. In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria. Remember, this is the northern kingdom of Israel. They rebelled against Jerusalem. They rebelled against the, uh, the place where God wanted to be worshipped. So they went and set up Samaria as their capital, and uh, Bethel and Dan as the two places where they would have uh, altars, worshiping golden calves and reigned 41 years and he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord he departed not from all the sins of Jeroboam the son of Nebat who made Israel to sin he restored the coast of Israel now this is the history that that is being predicted by Jonah he restored the coast of Israel from the entering of Hamath unto the sea of the plain according to the word of the Lord God of Israel which he spake by the hand of his servant Jonah notice the son of Amittai the prophet, which was of Goth Hefer. For the Lord saw the affliction of Israel, that it was very bitter. For there was not any shut up, nor any left, nor any helper for Israel. And the Lord said not that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven. But he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. So what's interesting about this prophecy is that Jonah lived and ministered during a period when Israel was strong militarily strong economically it was a period during which God poured out his grace upon the northern kingdom of Israel which didn't deserve his grace at all didn't deserve it we've talked about that from Hosea through Joel through Amos and through uh, Obadiah but under the rule of Jeroboam II the northern kingdom of Israel experienced the most illustrious and prosperous time of its history. Now, the Lord actually chose the rule of this particular king to give the people one last chance to repent. That is what the Lord was doing in the northern kingdom. He gave them through this king, Jeroboam II, one last chance to repent. And using the wicked ruler as his instrument or his tool, God poured out blessing after blessing upon the people. What did the people do? They took the blessing and then they took the credit. All with the hope. God had poured out his blessings. All with the hope that his goodness would arouse them to turn from their wickedness back to him. 
But don't look at this as a mistake of the Lord because God makes no mistakes. But God gives opportunity. He always gives opportunity. But despite every blessing of economic prosperity and military power, which were, by the way, unmatched since the days of Solomon, there was no spiritual prosperity. Not a bit of spiritual prosperity within the nation of Israel because the people's hearts were far from God. Now remember, though, that Jonah was from the northern kingdom. So there was always a remnant, but it was a very small remnant in the time of the northern kingdom. They were far from God. There's a verse of scripture in Isaiah chapter 29 that I think uh, we need to realize is, is, uh, it speaks, and it's, it's quoted by Paul also in the, in, the, uh, in the New Testament, or referred to by Jesus. Either way, in Psalm, uh, I'm sorry, in Isaiah 29 verse 13, it says, Wherefore the Lord said, For as much as this people draw near me with their mouth and with their lips do honor me, but have removed their heart far from me, and their fear toward me is taught by the precept of men. I have to tell you that when I read this, every time I read this, I think about the church. I think about the body of Christ today. And how there is so much more, uh, there's, so, there, there, there's so much more being listened to of what men are saying about what we need to do in the church. Rather than going back to God's word and knowing what God is wanting, is wanting us to do from his word. And I think that when we begin to depend too much on man about who says this or who says that or who does this or who does that in the church, what the church ought to be doing, what have we, what have we learned so far about some of the problems in the church today? The church is embracing worldly things. The church is embracing occultic things. Uh, you know, we, I don't want to talk about it again specifically because we talked about it so many other times before. But when you begin to do that, you're removing your heart far from God. Sometimes it's a matter of saying, well, you know, this, this, this is a better thing. This is an easier thing to do. God doesn't care about doing easy. He cares about doing obediently. That's what he wants us to do. To obey him. Everything's about easy, you know. We have dumbed down the church and put the word of God aside for fables. And that's something that Paul himself had said. Turning the word of God into fables. So even in the days of the prophets, they were concerned about these things happening within the religious aspect of Israel and certainly the spiritual aspect of the church. But it was during these days that Jonah was called to minister to the people of Israel. His contemporaries were Amos and Hosea, who were also called to warn the people of God's coming judgment unless they repented. Now, despite the people's continued rejection and wickedness, God had compassion upon them. He sent prophet after prophet after prophet to warn them, but this was to be the last time. This was to be the last time, and that's something that we have to always understand about the Lord when he gives warning. He warns and he warns and he warns until finally, you know, What's said in the heart is already said in the heart. It's not going to change. And, and the Lord knows that. The Lord always knows that. Sometimes we don't know that, but the Lord does. The citizens of the northern kingdom had to repent or God's hand of judgment would fall upon them. 
And if this happened, the nation would, would never rise again from the rubbish dump of destroyed nations. And eventually, that's what the Assyrians would do to the northern kingdom of Israel. So God says to Jonah, arise, go to Nineveh. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness is come up before me. Now, the Lord's commission to Jonah was clear and unmistakable. The prophet was to go to the city of Nineveh to warn them of impending judgment if they did not turn from their wicked ways. Always remember this, that God oversees all nations. And nations matter to God. And what nations do matter to God. As I said, Nineveh was one of the great cities of, of, of ancient civilization. It was founded by one of the first tyrants or dictators of the world. It was founded by a warrior named Nimrod, whose name is Marad, which means to rebel. It means to revolt. That means that his name would have meant a rebel or a revolutionary. Now, Nimrod's origin and character will be mentioned in more detail in our upcoming study of the deep state on Saturday and Sunday. So we'll, we're going to talk about Nimrod. He's, he plays a, a major role in, in establishing a foundation that we see still happening today, not just in politics, but primarily in, in, uh, in, the, in, in spiritual issues. So we'll come back to Nimrod later. But Nimrod himself, was a, he's called a mighty warrior before the Lord. That doesn't mean that he was a warrior for the Lord. It means that he was a mighty warrior truly against the Lord. That he did what he did blatantly in front of the Lord to show himself strong, to show himself powerful. This was the attitude of his heart. And by the way, one thing that we, we, we're going to kind of touch upon when we do talk about Nimrod is the fact that there, there are many who have placed by, because of certain names and, and, and uh, uh, titles given to this person in history, that this Nimrod was not just a regular human being, that he was considered one of the Nephilim or giants of the land. And that's very possible. Again, we'll, we'll talk about that later. But he actually set out to build the first worldwide empire, which included, of course, Babel, out in the plains of Shinar, toward Mesopotamia. Babel or Babylon. And this was just the beginning of Nimrod's empire, which included Erech and Akkad and, uh, in the area of Baghdad in Iraq, and on the Euphrates River in a place called Kalne. We'll see that in the scriptures in just a moment. But he also, he also founded the great Assyrian Empire, which we find in Genesis uh, 10, verses 10 and 11. So in Genesis 10, verses 10 and 11, it says, And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, and Erech, and Akkad, and Kalne, in the land of Shinar. Out of that land went forth 
Ashur, which is the word for Assyria. Out of that land went forth Ashur and builded Nineveh. Look how, look how old this city is. He builded Nineveh and the city Rehoboth and Kala. So Nimrod founded the city of Nineveh on the east side of the Tigris River, a location that sits across the river from the present day city of Mosul. How many of you heard Mosul on the news in the last five, six years? Probably more. Mosul. And although Nineveh was not always the capital of Assyria, it was always one of the major cities in that part of the world. And, and as we consider great cities in the scriptures, we discover that the Lord is truly interested in those great cities. Cities like Babylon, Damascus, Athens, Rome, Jerusalem, of course, Tyre, Sidon, and others. But one that needs to be included is Nineveh. Nineveh. It is estimated that Nineveh's population was over one million people. That's a lot for a city of those, of those times. And uh, of course, the last verse of the book of Jonah, the very last book in chapter, uh, the very last uh, verse in chapter four, tells us that infants alone in Nineveh numbered 120,000. Uh, I'll read it to you. It says, and should, not, and should not I spare Nineveh, that great city wherein are more than six score thousand persons that cannot discern between their right hand and their left hand? Well, who can discern between their right hand and their left hand but infants? I mean, one of the things you teach your kids when they finally get to an age where they can learn is what's left and what's right. So that has to be a reference then to, to, uh, uh, to infants. And certainly the missionary challenge now. Well, by the way, I just want to point out that I mentioned last week that the city was so great that it would take three days to go through the city walking. Three days to walk through the city of Nineveh. So certainly the missionary challenge of reaching the multitudes has, has assumed gigantic proportions in our day. The world population has exploded exponentially, surpassing the seven billion uh, mark. And every year, 85 million people are added to that total. Every year, 85 million people are added to the world population, uh, which comes out to about 10,000 people added to the population every hour. 10,000 people. Two-thirds of these will never have enough to eat. More than one-third will grow up in communist lands and be indoctrinated with atheism, while three-fifths will never learn to read and two-thirds will never hear the gospel. I hate to say this, that almost sounds like the United States of America today. Think about it. The indoctrination of our children in public schools today, the removal of prayer from the schools, the removal of the Bible from the schools in many cases, the focus on all kinds of cultural and societal issues are more important than reading and writing and arithmetic. 
in many places and in many cases, they've decided that, you know, it's, it's best not to offend anybody, so we're not going to read the Pledge of Allegiance. That's just indoctrination. And it truly is. And I, I don't say this from the political perspective. I say it from the spiritual perspective. But that is, that is indeed a very liberal, socialistic, and progressive uh, position that was actually aimed at changing the foundation of American culture. Coming from Soviet, the, the Soviet Union. How do we know this? Well, a former FBI agent uh, named Skousen wrote a book back in the 50s called The Naked Communist. And in that book, he, he wrote from the extensive research that he did, because there, those were the days of, of hunting, you know, communists in the government. And, of course, everybody raised their stinking head at... Uh, uh, <laughs> Uh, Senator McCarthy, you know, and they, they made it seem like a, just a continued witch hunt. What came out much later was that, in fact, he was right. They had infiltrated the government at the highest levels of the government and began to cause this shakeup in, in the foundation of, of the culture, the foundation of, 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 the, how, of the home, uh, the society, and you name it. Uh, so it, it was confirmed by another book, uh, it's called The Naked Truth, that every point that they made to accomplish has already been pretty much accomplished in this country. Thank the Lord that God is still in control and that we have the opportunity to pray and to live our lives still as followers of Jesus Christ. But this is a challenge. This is quite a challenge, isn't it? So I gave you numbers about the population globally, but <laughs> the problems are here as well. So with all of this in mind, Jonah would, would get into trouble simply because his attitudes were all wrong. First of all, he had a wrong attitude toward the will of God. He had a wrong attitude toward the will of God. Obeying the will of God is as important to God's servant as it is to the people his servants minister to. It is in the will of God that we find our spiritual nourishment. Without the will of God, we won't find that. We'll search for it. We may search for a lot of things and be led astray, led in one direction or another, but by the will of God, we can find our spiritual nourishment. Think of the words of Jesus in John chapter 4, verse 34, where Jesus saith unto them, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me. My meat, in other words, my nourishment, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. That's my food. That's what Jesus said. That's my nourishment, to do the will of God. That's how I'm fed. That's how I'm strengthened. That's how I'm nourished. That's how I'm kept. That's how I grow. Now for Jesus to say that, how much more us? 
How much more are we who need spiritual nourishment every day? Every day. It is in obeying the will of God that we find not only our spiritual nourishment, but we find our spiritual enlightenment as well. We find spiritual light in obeying the will of God. And again, I refer to Jesus in John chapter 7, verse 17, when he says, If any man will do his will, he shall know of the doctrine, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. If any man will do his will, he shall know the doctrine. He shall know the word of God. He shall know the truth of God. He shall know the things of God that we need to know. And we will know whether it is of God or not. This is why John, who heard the words of Jesus firsthand, said that we need to test the spirits to see if they are of God. We cannot take the words that are floating out there in, in you know, the... In the internet and every place else. We just can't take it for granted. They used to joke sometimes. I'd say, well, if it's on the internet, it must be true. <laughs> Is it true? Of course not. A lot of lies on the internet. It is in obeying the will of God that we find not only our spiritual nourishment and enlightenment, but it is in obeying the will of God that we find our spiritual enablement. We are enabled by the word of God. By obeying the will of God, we are enabled. In Hebrews 13, the last chapter of Hebrews, in verses 20 and 21, Paul says, Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect or complete in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Make you perfect in every good work to do his will. Well, that comes, that, that, that's what, it, what it's saying is by doing the will of God, we are being enabled. He, he enables us. He gives us what we need to perform the good work in doing his will. To doing that which is well-pleasing in his sight. So getting back to Jonah, was, was Jonah well-pleasing in God's sight at that, at that moment in time? When he decides that he's not going to go to Nineveh. He's going to get on a boat and actually go in the totally opposite direction. He's going to go to the, to the region of Spain. Maybe he was hungry for paella or something. I don't know. It would seem that, you know, he had, must have had some reason to go in that direction. Well, yeah, he wanted to get away from God's will. Wrong attitude. Because when you get away from God's will, you lose, you don't gain. You never gain. So his wrong attitude towards God will stem from a feeling that the Lord was asking him to do an impossible thing. 
You want me to go and preach to these people in Nineveh? By the way, there's a little bit of a hidden thing here that is, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll catch up to it later. But I think, I think you know what I mean when I, when I say that there was a little bit of, of national pride in, in, jo, in Jonah. And in realizing that these Assyrians, these, these Ninevites, they, they deserve everything that they can get because they're such raunchy people. So if you're going to judge them, go judge them, Lord. Wipe them out. Don't send me. God commanded the prophet to go to Israel's enemy, Assyria, and give the city of Nineveh opportunity to repent, and Jonah would much rather see the city destroyed. The Assyrians were a cruel people who had often abused Israel, and Jonah's narrow patriotism took priority over his theology. We need to be careful about that ourselves. This is the reason why we need to pray every day about the condition of the world, the condition of, 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 of our nation. We, 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 need to, we need to really seek God's will just to wake up in the morning and be on the right side of God's desires. Who, by the way, is in control of all nations, in control of all things. There's nothing that has gotten away from God. God isn't like going, oh my God, what am I going to do? But you're our God, of course, you know. Oh my God. He is God. So he doesn't worry about these things. We have to keep remembering that God has seen the end from the beginning and the beginning from the end. And he knows. That's where faith comes in. That's where we trust him. Now, we can be patriotic. Many of you here have served this country well. And we appreciate that. And we should. But we have to remember the dynamic of prophecy. That there are going to be a lot of things that are going to happen in the next few days, weeks, months, and even maybe a few years that are going to happen because God knows that they're going to happen to bring about the end of all things. As he has already pointed out in the books of the prophets and in the books of the apostles as well as in the book of Revelation. All of these things are falling into place. Which tells us, you know, we may have a political leaning. We may say, well, wow, I, I, we see these things happening uh, at a rapid pace. Some, some very heavy-duty things are going to happen in the next few weeks, months, and, and even years. And, and I can tell you this, everything that's been happening in this country with impeachment and, and, and all these big words that we see happening uh, in our government today, it's all a part of it. It's all a part of this deep state. It's all a part of the things that are happening that didn't start in Washington, but it started in the Garden of Eden with Satan. And we just know that God, that's why Christ came, because he came to destroy the works of the devil. He's come to do that. He died on the cross. He conquered sin. He conquered death. He conquered the grave. He did all of those things. But there's a time frame. And God is going to work through that until the very last person is in the church that is saved. And God says it's time to go home. 
Then starts that time clock for Israel. Seven more years of subjection. And it won't be pretty, but it will be right because it is in God's prophetic plan. So what Jonah had forgotten was that the will of God was and is the expression of the love of God. The will of God was and is the expression of the love of God. Now those of you that may have been with us on on New Year's Eve when we did the baptisms here, uh, and we showed that video about what's happening in Iran today, and the many number of, of, uh, of, of Christians that, uh, of course, they have to leave the country to get baptized and all. But, but the, the, the picture is this, is, is that that's where we have to be sensitive, where we need to be discerning. You know, we realize that it's the leadership and the mullahs and the imams and the, uh, you know, the ayatollahs in, in Iran that, that make the people cry, you know, death to Israel, death to America. But there are a whole lot of people, and some of them have risen up this past week against the things that happened in, in Iran when they fired off their missiles and, and, you know, hit that Ukrainian jet that went down and killed 160-some people. And they're angry at their leadership over there. And they stand in defiance against it even at the risk of losing their own life because they'll take you and they'll either put you in jail and you won't be heard from again or they'll just kill you. And that's known to happen. But we cannot forget that the will of God is always an expression of the love of God. That is why in Psalm 33 verse 11 it says, The counsel of the Lord standeth forever. The thoughts of his heart to all generations. That is why we can read the words of Psalm, uh, of uh, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Because he says God so loved the world. The cosmos. Not certain parts of the world. Not certain people in the world. God so loved the world. And whosoever believeth in him should not perish. But you see, when you go back to Jonah at this point in his life, Jonah knew, what all that Jonah knew was that the Assyrians were a violent, a bloodthirsty people guilty of slaughtering so many others that they were known as one of the most cruel people ever to live on the earth. In fact, if you'll turn a few pages to the right in your Bibles to a book, Nahum, or Nahum, as we say in English. Uh, in Spanish, it's Naum, which is pretty much the same way in, in Hebrew. Naum, in chapter 3, because uh, this is a prophecy against uh, Nineveh as well. But in Naum, chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, it says, Woe to the bloody city! It is all full of lies and robbery. The prey departeth not. The noise of a whip and the noise of the rattling of the wheels and of the prancing horses and of the jumping chariots. 
The horseman lifteth up both the bright sword and the glittering spear, and there is a multitude of slain and a great number of carcasses, and there is none end of their corpses. They stumble upon their corpses. Death in the streets. That's what it's describing. And they were also a people guilty of false worship and of engaging in the world of the occult and witchcraft. Look at verse 4, the next verse. Because of the multitude of the whoredoms of the well-favored harlot, the mistress, or I'm sorry, the mistress of witchcrafts that selleth nations through her whoredoms and families through her witchcrafts. And, and I can tell you this, that there is a tremendous undercurrent of witchcraft in the United States today. And you will be very surprised to know that that undercurrent of witchcraft and occult practice is in the highest areas of our government today. And I will tell you this, and I'll say it again on Sunday, but it doesn't discriminate between Democrat and Republican. And that is a very sad thing. I thank the Lord that we can still worship as we do here. We have the freedom still, albeit maybe, you know, the black helicopters are flying around outside or, you know, the black suburbans are out there, you know, whatever, the black ones. Or somebody listening in on the mic here. Doesn't bother me. Our God is in control. But we need to understand that this is what's happening. And please understand this. Please, I just want you to know. I don't wear an aluminum you know, foil hat. You all, know, you all know what I mean by that? Conspiracy theory, you know, signs. Remember? Okay. Another one of those. Okay. So without question, God's new commission to Jonah was to be very difficult. Nineveh's population was so large at the time that it took three days, as I said earlier, to travel over the city and its suburbs. It is not easy to think of being called by God to preach on the street corners of such a large city and to such a sinful people. No Jewish prophet had ever been sent to Nineveh before, but now the Lord was giving this most difficult assignment, no doubt a frightening task, to his dear prophet Jonah. And as I said last week, God did this, not so much just for Nineveh, because Nineveh eventually, of course, will be judged. He did this to remind Israel that they could not forsake the Lord. This was a way of the Lord saying, here they are repenting, which is something that you should be doing, but you haven't done. So now, up to this point, prophet of God, Jonah has always proven faithful, apparently very faithful, or else the Lord would not have chosen him for this mission, one so intimidating that it seemed impossible. But the Lord's commission to Jonah is a picture. It is a picture for us of the great commission given to all believers. 
It is a picture of the great commission given to all believers. He has commissioned us to go bear strong witness of his salvation. We are to bear witness to the fact that we can be saved from sin and death and the coming judgment of God. We must go to the great cities of the world as well as to the communities, towns, and country areas of our nations. In fact, the commission of the Lord is clear. Before Jesus ascended into heaven after his resurrection, he told those who were gathered, but you shall receive power, Acts 1 verse 8. You shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. Isn't it interesting that Jesus would mention Samaria? Samaria was a was an, you know, was a place that the Jews would not ever go through. It was an unclean place. They considered them as, as half-breeds. And they would not walk through Samaria just on their way up to the northern part of Israel during the time of Jesus. They would go all the way around on all sides. John chapter 4, read that, because John chapter 4, Jesus goes into Samaria. He goes into Samaria to drink water from a well from a woman that he has a conversation with. Her life is changed because Jesus didn't come just for the Jewish people. He came for all men. He came for Jew and Gentile. He says, Be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. I believe his mention of Samaria was to say to his people as well as to everyone. It doesn't matter where I call you, even if you don't want to go. I died for them too. You witness to them my love, my grace. My mercy. Jesus in Matthew 28 verses 19 and 20 said, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. Paul to Titus in Titus chapter 2 verses 11 through 15, and we'll close with this. Paul said, for the grace of God that bringeth salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. These things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no man despise thee. That is the commission that God has given to us. In effect, it was a very similar commission given to Jonah. So we we don't get to see Jonah pondering this situation. We don't get to see him sit down and say, well, let me think about where I should be going. It was a clear commission to a prophet who had already heard the voice of God to prophesy as he had 
to the nation of Israel in its terrible state of being. And he was faithful in it. And then God says, okay, I have a new assignment for you. Well, anytime we hear new assignment, we think, well, that's a new challenge. You know, well, let's, let's see what it is and see what I have to do, what, what, where I have to, myself, where I have to, you know, adjust. Or maybe I just need to do what I've always done. God says, I want you to go to Nineveh. Did you say Nineveh? I want you to go to Nineveh and I want you to cry against her. Hmm. I think I'll go on vacation now. I haven't been on vacation for quite a while, Lord. I think I'm just going to take off and see the sights in Spain. Well, tell us, Jonah, how that went. If you will, next week. (laughs) We're going to see something of of a great connection to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, of course. But it also gives us an understanding that Jonah may have died in that fish. We'll talk about that next time.